Past, present, future, live. In-depth conversations and exclusive live performances featuring some of the most dynamic artists from the world of contemporary music. From Osiris Media, this is Past, Present, Future Live. I'm your host, RJB. This week, we bring you an interview with MC Taylor of His Golden Messenger. MC Taylor grew up in Southern California and got into the emo and hardcore scene with his first band, and then had an indie rock band in San Francisco for about 10 years. And then he ended that project, moved across the country to North Carolina, and got a master's degree in folklore. We talk about the transformation he underwent as he started to write music in North Carolina as His Golden Messenger. His latest album, Terms of Surrender, came out in 2019. I asked him about the vulnerability of his songs and the process of putting together these albums that seem to resonate so widely and deeply. We also talked about the songs he's written for his kids, which you'll hear reflected in the tunes he plays after the interview. He told me about why one of the biggest releases to date for him was an initial disappointment, and how the next album, which was released to widespread acclaim, came together very quickly and organically. We also talked about his activism in public education and the role of music in helping to create change. It was a fun conversation and I hope you enjoy it. After the interview, you'll hear MC Taylor perform Drum, Biloxi, and Happy Birthday Baby. And you can also see a Spotify playlist inspired by the conversation in the show notes. And before we get into it, I want to remind you about Sunset Lake CBD. I use their products every day, and in this chaotic world, it gives me a little bit of calm and relaxation. You can get 15% off your first order when you go to sunsetlakecbd.com and enter the promo code PPFL15. And I'll put that link in the show notes as well. So let's get into this interview with MC Taylor of His Golden Messenger. So I'm here with MC Taylor. Thanks so much for joining us from home today. Glad to be here. Um, I want to talk to you about your most recent album and and the live album, Forward Children, which I think is really cool. Um, But I have to go all the way back and ask you, do you have an earliest musical memory I have a few that I think are just, you know, some memories of my evolving connection to music. But I think my earliest musical memory is probably of my dad playing guitar around the house. He he himself was a singer and a, a guitar player. Um, he grew up in Southern California in the in the 60s and so was part of the like folk music boom that was happening then and you know, all through my childhood, he was always playing. He has an amazing singing voice, very different from mine. And, uh, he's, he's a great guitar player too. So that's my earliest memory. Yeah. Was there tons of records playing around the house? Was there always music around? Was that like your memory of growing up? You know, it's funny. I would have said that I would have probably said that my parents were huge music fans for most of my life. I think the reality was that the record collection actually in my house was quite small. I think that there was a certain era during which they were buying records and after which they weren't buying records anymore. So like their listening tastes are pretty frozen in a decade that probably starts in 1965 and goes until maybe 75, which is when I was born. So and I'm the I'm the first kid in the family. So, you know, it was some Beatles records, Buffalo Springfield, James Taylor, 
those are like the three big ones. Pretty good decade if you had to choose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they've picked up records here and there since that time, but I think of them as music fans, but they weren't the kind of music fan that you are probably or that I am. Were you out discovering new music like as a young kid? I mean, I was just, there was something about me. I don't know. I don't know what it was that made me connect with music probably more than anything else. So I I have some real strong memories of, I think that at a certain point in the 1980s, some like cassettes were being sold on TV that there, it was really like bait for baby boomers, you know? So it was like, I know that my dad bought like a cream tape and I know that he bought a um, Buffalo Springfield tape and a Creedence Clearwater tape. And he used to play those in the car on family trips. And I just remember like really liking that music a lot. That was like some of the first stuff that I was like, wow, this is really cool. And as I got a little bit older and started to gain a little bit of independence. Like this would have been like 10, 11, 12. I was getting really into skateboarding and surfing and basically activities that were kind of on the margins, even though, you know, Southern California where I grew up was sort of ground zero for that stuff. It still didn't exist in the way that it does today. And there was a lot of music that existed on the margins that went with those activities. Do you know what I mean? Because like, so there was a skateboard shop. It was a skateboard shop slash shaved ice shop that I could like ride my skateboard up to and I could rent VHS tapes, VHS skateboard tapes, you know, so I would rent like a new Alva skateboard video or, um, a new like Pal Peralta video and there was always music in that. So then I would wait until the end credits and I would write down what it was that was playing. And this was a lot of this was like punk rock. So that's how I got into stuff like TSOL. That was a huge one for me. The early TSOL albums were probably the first records that I bought with my own money that my parents had no connection to whatsoever. They didn't know what it was that I was, it was my own thing. I, at that same time. So now we're talking about like 1985, 86, 87. That was really like the first golden era of hip hop. And that music over the next couple of years around then became more important to me than anything else. So stuff like, Stetsasonic, De La Soul, Run DMC, Eric B and Rakim. What else was happening? A Tribe Called Quest came a little bit later. Brand Nubian came a little bit later. But there was a good five years where I was into punk rock, but I was mostly into hip hop. I just couldn't get enough of it. I still can't, actually. I mean, it's so reflected in my own music with a band that I think it's kind of funny. Like, I love very rhythmic music. And, you know, so as I got older and started to understand a little bit like how they were making that music, of course, that opened up musical universes to me, you know, to understand that Eric B and Rakim were sampling a guy named James Brown and then putting on a James Brown record and going like, oh my God, this record is 
everything about this record is that is that kind of groove was you know it was pretty earth shattering yeah the early hip-hop stuff is it's so influential on so many people fans and musicians you know of different genres like it permeated society which is amazing and still a lot of those early hip-hop artists still don't get that much credit no no i mean not so dissimilar from the way that um you know many of the inventors of rock and roll r&b soul music even if they've been recognized historically, I don't think many of them have been compensated the, the way that they should be. Yeah. Was there a point where you were like, I'm going to be a musician? Um, I mean, that was probably around the age of 43 or so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I always loved music. And I would say as I got older and I started, I started to drift away a little bit from hip hop. I don't really know why. I just... I was discovering new things and was started to get really connected to punk and hardcore music that was, um, that existed around me where I live, where I'd grown up and like, I could go see this stuff and there would only be like a hundred people there and I could be like five feet from the band. And to feel that did something so visceral to me. It was like a drug, you know? Um, and, and, Again, I mean, I feel fortunate to have lived through some really or to have been in touch with some really deep musical times, because like in the early to mid 90s, the hardcore scene, you know, the like first wave emo scene that really has no no resemblance whatsoever to what a lot of people think of as emo. But that scene in California was so incredible you know there was a record label called gravity records in san diego that was putting out some of the most groundbreaking intense music that i had ever heard and they were like right in my backyard i knew the people in the bands you know and because that world was such a do-it-yourself world i i knew some rudiments on guitar but i thought to myself you know, I'm going to be in a band. All the people in these bands are, are fans of music and they are connected to some kind of social movement that feels like it has to do with justice, equity, because this was a time when like punk rock was, wow, a huge owl just flew by. <laughs> this was a time when things like punk rock and hardcore and noise music and organizations like Take Back the Night and Food Not Bombs were all mixed together. So all of these crowds would be at these shows together. And it was really, it was really heady. And so that's when I started playing music because I just wanted to be a part of the creation of sound so badly. It was way more will than skill. Even at that time, though, it never it never crossed my mind that it could be a career. I wasn't thinking about it that way. So I don't think I ever considered it in one way or another. It was just what I was doing right then. And you went on to have a couple bands based in California before you made the move out east, right? Yeah. What did you want your music to accomplish at that point? Was it just like go out and play? Or did you want to be part of that kind of movement you were explaining? Well... You know, the hardcore movement over time, 
as all of us got a little older, I mean, I'm talking like age 15, 16, 17. I went to college when I was 17. I found that musical universe very inspiring, but at a certain point, it started to feel like the boundaries were too, they were too stiff for me. And, you know, the, the people that I was hanging around with in college, including my friend Scott Hirsch, who has worked on almost every Hiss record with me, we were just discovering new music. You know, it was a time when not only were we listening to hardcore music, but we were buying issues of The Wire, that magazine, The Wire. And in that magazine, we were discovering things like Autecra, Mouse on Mars, John Fahey, Alice Coltrane, all these different worlds of music that were complicated and stood in contrast to popular music and were feeling really exciting. And so the music that I was making, I sort of faded away from the punk rock scene because I saw people that were not much older than me making music that felt so harmonically rich that I felt like what I'm doing is not very interesting. So we kind of like, you know, we kind of like wound down our hardcore band. Scott Hirsch played in that band with me and just kind of dabbled with songwriting. But of course, I didn't know anything about how to write a song. I just, I was doing it super blindly. I graduated from college a semester early and I moved home to my parents' house in Southern California. I was living in Santa Barbara and all, everyone else I knew stayed there. And during that time, I got a job and I spent those months, it wasn't even that long, but in real isolation and started discovering music that was sort of of my parents' generation, but that they had never gone deep into. So, you know, I was, I was going, getting deeper into Bob Dylan. I might have known a, a record or two of his. I started discovering country music through bands like the birds and the flying burrito brothers and the dead and you know my whole musical universe again was just evolving and sort of like cohabitating with other music that we had already been been getting into so it was like electronic music country music folk music and after that period of sort of like solitary confinement um, me and my friends all moved to San Francisco and they were all like, Whoa, what the hell happened to you? Cause I had like grown, my hair had gotten long <laughs> and I'd grown a, I'd grown a beard and I had bought a banjo and, um, <laughs> was trying to show them all this country music and they were like, Whoa, okay. <laughs> and I was like, we, we got to start like a country band. And, you know, so me and Scott and my friend James, many of us from Santa Barbara had moved up to San Francisco. So now this is the time that, you know, that kind of music is kind of having another resurgence. And you start seeing bands like Beachwood Sparks start making records. And so we we started a band called The Court and Spark that was basically like a, a sort of druggy roots band that you know was like the tempos were 
slow. We had a pedal steel player. And we, we did that band for a good 10 years. We did a lot of touring and stuff. And even with that band, although I would have liked it to be able to contribute in some way to my life financially, <laughs> it never did. We made, we made many records, but we never had any success that could sustain us. That's crazy. And you can listen to some of these albums out there. I didn't realize it was that long. Maybe it was like nine, nine years, nine and a half. Still, it's a long time. You know, San Francisco, I mean, it was not what it is now, but it's not an easy place to survive generally. It was tough. I mean, we all had full-time jobs the whole time and we'd use up our vacation and sick time to go on tour and come back and try and save it up again. And, you know, it was a struggle, but I don't know. I, I felt, I felt compelled to make music. I wasn't doing it to make money. Money would have been nice, but that was nowhere, you know, nowhere close to my priority list. What I was trying to do was get inside the way that the music that I love works. I talk to a lot of artists about this like sense of place and like it seems like the sense of place for you, at least from my perspective, not knowing that much, like you, you moved to North Carolina at some point and like this whole other chapter unfolds. Is that too simplistic? Not really. That's what happened. But it wasn't planned. You know, um, what happened is that by, I'd say 2006, I was run pretty ragged and my wife, my, my now wife, my girlfriend at the time, and I were just like, this music's not happening and we're not going to be able to do the things that we want to do. Like we want to buy a house and we want to have kids and that shouldn't feel so impossible. San Francisco is not going to be where we could do that. So I started looking into graduate programs to go back to school and I was interested in folklore programs. I don't know that I fully understood at the time what folklore was as an academic discipline. Mm -hmm. But um, there weren't that many of them at the time. There were a handful. And I knew that if we moved, I was really interested in living in the South somewhere because it seemed like, you know, so much of what I was interested in musically, culturally, and in terms of literature and food and visual art had its roots in the South. So mm -hmm. I thought like, maybe if I move to the South, I can get inside this Southern imaginary a little more because if I don't have like on the ground experiences in the South, I'm only going to be able to understand it so much. And then there's going to be a point after which I don't, I don't get it. And I have a feeling that that stuff is probably the most important stuff. <laughs> One important thing I should say is that before we moved here, I would say in the year before we moved from San Francisco to North Carolina, and before we had put our band, The Court and Spark, to rest, I had conceived of and started another band called His Golden Messenger that I had like very specific ideas for what I wanted to do. Like I had this rule, uh, you should never have rules when you're, when you're making a record, but I had this rule, like 
we're not going to have any acoustic guitars on this record. And I'm going to hire specific drummers. You know, like my bands had been democratically run. And at that point, I made the decision, like, I'm going to be the boss. I'm going to tell everybody I'm the boss and I'm going to pay for everything. So like, I'm going to make, go make this record and I'm going to pay for it myself somehow, because I think that means that I'm going to be able to make exactly the sort of record I want to make. So we started and made the bulk of what became a record called Country High East Cotton in San Francisco. We made it at a studio called A Different Fur, which is an amazing studio in the Mission District, kind of hidden away, that some of Herbie Hancock's Headhunters records were made there. It was great. So in the year leading up to my departure, I did have these musical revelations like, okay, I understand how one could make exactly the record they want to make. But still my, my desire or our desire, my wife and I's desire for just a whole change of scenery was so strong that we just left. The record was, I intended to finish it, but I didn't know how. I didn't know how I was going to put it out. I just knew we needed a change. So we packed our car and we moved to North Carolina. And that's 2007. So his golden messenger has started then, but is not, you know, is not viable. <laughs> <laughs> I know that that album, it's like, it's very produced compared to the next couple records you made, which were much more stripped down. And, but if you listen to that and then you listen to bad dead or poor moon, which are the two that came after totally different. Um, yeah. Was the folklore program and what you were learning and studying, was that affecting the way you were writing music because I assume going into that you were looking at through the lens of music somewhat that you were going to like learn about culture and figure out how to communicate it but that might be reading too much into it I'm just curious if that was reflected in the music so like what I hear between country high there actually is a record in between country high and bad debt called uh, root work and it's a live record that I did in an edition of like maybe 200 LPs I think the biggest thing is the evolution of my songwriting. The songs on Country High are fine. They're whatever. I feel the same way about the songs on the Court and Spark records. Like, they're fine. I think that the evolution of my songwriting had a lot to do with me spending so much time alone in a brand new place, in a place that we knew nobody. We had no friends. So my relationship to music shrank it got very very personal and very solitary and i spent a lot of time thinking about my relationship to music and what is it for and what is it worth and why why should i do it and i think i moved into this space where i felt like i should do it for me and if it makes me happy then it has a lot of value if it makes me understand myself a little bit better, then that's a huge value. I really, I really leaned on that really hard. And I feel like I still do. If this isn't moving me personally in some way, then I should stop. And, and that like reorienting of my relationship to music, I feel like opened something up in me because I think up to that point, having been in a touring band that was making records and stuff until then, like my 
feeling about music was I'm a failure and what I do has no real value because people don't seem to like it. And in my early years of being in North Carolina, it was, I wasn't playing shows. I was in school and then I was working. My relationship became like, this is for me. This is the way that I like meditate on myself and my family and things that I think are important. And that was a turning point for me. It made writing words, it made writing lyrics feel more genuine. Was it like a painful process or was it mostly joyful or was it a a mix of that and probably more? It was both, I think. There was some loneliness. There was some feeling that we were kind of spinning (laughs) spinning out in some corner of the universe that we didn't fully understand and that I had lost my place a little bit. But it also felt like a huge time of discovery. You know, it was so it was both. And not long after, in 2009, we had our first kid. And, you know, then that sort of like intense emotional response was in the mix too. And, and then I, I wasn't even thinking about whether I was a failure at music. I was just like, I, I started putting all these heavy emotions into the words that I was writing. And if you're writing words that you feel are real, that gives you the freedom to do a lot of melodic searching. Like I feel like about that time is when I found a voice that felt genuine to me as someone that writes melody. Yeah, well, I think that's definitely reflected in the music. I mean, I was going to ask about both Haw and Lateness of Dancers, and I actually was going to ask you if there was a point where it felt like this was really like becoming your voice or or, or like where it was like, oh, this is really working. Because those two albums to me are totally different and kind of a big step forward. There's also Phil Cook who starts to like become more present in the songs and in the sound. And I don't know if it's the same time frame, but like that's when your music to me starts to sound totally different and a little bit, I don't know, more mature and brighter and and also kind of more intense at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I would say that after I wrote Bad Debt and then quickly thereafter made Poor Moon and and Ha, like those were all made pretty quick, uh, like pretty quick in relation to one another, I felt like, okay, I found it. Not necessarily I found the one thing forever, but okay, yes, I have something to say. I have something to do. I felt like I had a purpose. I met Phil, well, let's see. So I must have met Phil at the very end of when we were making Ha. He had a band here with his brother called Megaphone, and they were like hot shit in the area. Uh, Nobody knew who I was at at that time, or like a few people were starting to say like, who's this guy, his golden messenger? Have you heard of this guy? Like, cause I was putting out records in like really small, limited numbers. I'd press like 200 records and they would sell like immediately, but I wasn't playing shows. I didn't really know anybody. I knew some people, but I had no connection to the local music community. So people were like, who who is this guy that's putting these records out? Does anybody know who this guy is? (laughs) (laughs) And Phil, Phil was clued in, you know, he's just clued into music. So we met each other at a very early His Golden Messenger full band show that uh, William Tyler was playing guitar then. 
my connection to Phil was actually through William Tyler because Willie and I had done a little bit of touring in the UK together. Like right around that time, there was more attention for my music in the UK than here. So I had gotten in touch with a few people over there and they were putting together these shows and I, William and I would both play solo. And that was like the first time I was like, holy shit, people are actually at this show. Anyway, so through William, I met Phil. Megaphone was a strange band because they, it, that, that band did not play to the strengths of anybody in, in it, um, intentionally so. So like Phil was, I mean, Phil can play anything. He's, he's amazing. But he was playing banjo, pretty much only banjo in that band. And I was like, I had met him and I was looking for someone to add a piano part to some things on Ha, and I was like, um, I heard that you play a little piano. Would you be up for trying something? And he was like, yeah, sure, I could try something. And like, so I went to his house with a mobile recording rig, and mm -hmm. he played, and I was like, oh my God, dude, you're, you're an amazing piano player. He was like, yeah, I mean, that's like my main instrument. And I was like, dude, okay, what? why are you... Okay. I don't understand what, what the megaphone thing is about, but all right. Um, anyway, <laughs> all that to say, like over the next couple of years, megaphone sort of folded and Phil started playing with me in his. And it's funny because Phil does not play on the records as much as people think that he does. However, his influence, it definitely lives on the records that he appeared on pretty strongly because it was around the time of Lateness of Dancers that he showed me some guitar tunings that I was not using, that I, that I started using a lot after that. Um, so I started using a lot of open D, not dadgad, but having the G at F sharp. That definitely is a Phil Cook thing that I took from him. And so now, now, like when we're playing live, I always have a guitar in that tuning and I use it for like half the set. And that to me, to my ear is like, that came from Phil. That song's like Caledonia, Biloxi, I Need a Teacher, Say It Like You Mean It. I mean, so many. I mean, I really feel like His Golden Messenger is the only band that does what we do. I don't mean for that to sound to sound like I'm bragging at all. I'm just always hard pressed to think of a, a contemporary that kind of does this thing. I feel like there's a, a Grateful Dead quote. Maybe it's I don't know where it came from, but something like, you know, they're not the best at what they do. They're the only band that does what they do. And like, I've always kind of felt like this is like that, too, like. People get so confused about what kind of music it is or where to place us. Or, I mean, I think people think of us as like a roots band or like an Americana band. And that's, that's cool. I get it. But we've always lived on like the fringes of that. You know what I mean? I always thought of someone like Van Morrison as, as having a really cool template for incorporating many types of of beautiful mu American music that really foregrounds the emotion. 
in front of everything else. You can listen to his music and you can hear, you know, folk and blues and gospel and jazz. And, you know, he's borrowing from many traditions, but it mostly just sounds like he is very moved to be making that music. And, it, and it's really, it's really grooving. He always was really in tune with what the rhythm section was doing and how you put a rhythm section together. People think of the bass and drums as the rhythm section. The way that we talk about the rhythm section when we're making Hiss records is like the rhythm section is the bass, drums, piano, and guitar. It's a four-person rhythm section. I want to jump forward to 2016, Heart Like a Levy. That was the first album I heard. So to me, it was like a huge revelation of like, oh, wow, there's this new band. I read that there were some feelings of like disappointment after the release or you wanted to follow it up quickly. It, it feels to me like that album was like huge because it was when like a bunch of people I know kind of discovered your music. But I'm curious about your perspective on that that record and the kind of aftermath. I think that record has become a lot of people's favorite and their point of entry into, into my music. I think that it maybe felt like a bit of a failure at the time because that was a time when we were really trying to step it up in terms of how we would put the record out. We hired a high dollar publicist and they, you know, they really blew some smoke at us and made some, not promises, but I don't know. Anytime any publicist starts promising anything, you should probably probably run away. <laughs> I don't know. We put it out and it, it just kind of felt like it fell flat a little bit. I, I don't know. I mean, the last months of that record were tricky anyway because we mixed it. We had someone mix it and it was totally wrong. It was like fucked up. And so that was the first time that like the first time in my life, there's just like these new and new le <laughs> deeper levels of how complicated making records can be. That was the first time in my life that I was like, we're going to have to remix this record. I'm going to have to pay for someone to actually take these tracks and remix it. I was like, oh my God, Jesus Christ. That's like a catastrophe. It's fine. It was fine. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't a catastrophe at all. How did you feel about it personally, like the songs when it was finished? Did you feel like it was a, a step forward? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I felt like it was just like a good, genuine next chapter in the book. Did I think of it as a masterpiece? I don't think so. I just thought like, this is really good. People are going to like this because I like this. But anyway, it came out and for the reasons that I mentioned, it felt like it had fallen a little bit flat. So I was talking to my manager at the time and my booking agent, who's a very dear friend of mine, still my agent. And I was like, what are we going to do? And Adam, my booking agent was like, well, you know, what would be really badass is if you put another record out like right away. And I was like, what do you mean right away? He's like, <laughs> in like, in like three months. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> shit. Okay. Well, let me think about that. And then we, 
we all started to get really excited about this idea because there were songs like I, I was writing a lot of songs. We at that time were doing a tour opening for the Drive-By Truckers. Amazing band, incredible people. So we just made this decision. Okay, we're going to go out on the support tour with the truckers and every night we're only going to play these new songs and we're going to figure out how to play them and then we're going to just go record them. So that's what we did. We did this tour for like two weeks, played the new songs every night. I'm sure people that were there to hear us were like, wait, you just put out a new record and you're not (laughs) playing any of the songs. And we came home. Let's see, we got our friend Josh Kaufman, who is another dear friend of mine, guitar player, to come down. So we were basically a five-piece band, and we went in and we made Hallelujah Anyhow. Uh, And Josh Kaufman says, I don't remember it this way, but he says that we made that record in one day. That's what I've read. It seems outrageous. It seems a little unbelievable, but we only had three days booked to make that record. You know, we we were so dialed in that it is possible that we recorded all the basic tracks in one day and then sang them all and kind of poked around at them for another two days. And then and then we put that record out really like, I don't know, six months after Heart Like a Levy. And I forever have to give a lot of props and credit to Merge Records, my record label, for being game. Because at the time when we came up with the idea, Merge was like you want to put a record out in September or whatever, that's, that's a lot. I don't think we can do that just logistically. And we just said like, look, you've been pressing records with the same pressing plants for years. Call in a favor. See if they can do it quicker. And to their credit, they did. They got on board. It all worked. And hallelujah, anyhow at the time felt like a little bit of a redemption because the expectations, my expectations were lower. It was just like, we just made another badass record and we're going to put this one out too. And it's cool. This album, Hallelujah Anyhow, came out in, in 2017 in this like moment when everyone needed it. It seemed so perfect for the time, you know, to me and, and to a lot of my friends and, and people I know and people in the music world who have, whose reviews I've read, this like it was needed and, and you guys kind of delivered it at this time that I think made it seem planned in some way that just gave everyone a little bit of a distraction. But Oh, well, that makes me feel good. I never feel those things when a record comes out. My feeling is always like, oh, people don't like this record. <laughs> I saw you guys at 9.30 Club in December of 2017. It was the night before the Roy Moore-Doug Jones election in Alabama. And and the song, When the Wall Comes Down, I'm not sure if you guys played it that night, but that song is like so related to kind of this world and the ideas of equity and stuff that we were talking about. And that night you talked about that election from the stage. And I, since I've seen you in subsequent shows, you kind of have been a little bit more vocal about politics and about education and about stuff like that. Do you feel an an increased responsibility to use your platform to speak out about stuff you believe in? I mean, there just clearly seems like certain things that are right and wrong to me. And so I happen to have this platform, not huge, but bigger than most people. And I can't stand bullies. You know what I mean? I can't fucking stand bullies. 
And it seems like our country is be, has been run by bullies for the past four years. And I, I, uh, I can't, I just can't take it. So it's kind of a little bit of, a little bit of Tourette's for me, um, just in terms of like, it's hard to control. And sometimes I regret it or wish I had articulated something a different way, but you know, things just seem so clear to me that it's like, I can't help it. It's hard to navigate the complexity of my feelings about it because generally speaking, when I see someone yelling about something on social media, it can be tough. At the same time, I do feel like it's my duty. I mean, um, I've been putting out these benefit records, Forward Children in March, and there's a new one coming out tomorrow, actually, called School Days. Those records have raised a lot of money for the Durham Public Schools Foundation. And, and I feel like moving into that space of being able to use my work to, to help you know, my community something outside of myself has been like another layer or level of understanding about what music can accomplish. It's been really beautiful. Like all of the money that I have donated to that organization has benefited me at least as much as that organization, just in terms of like understanding that I can spread the wealth around and it's good, you know? There are people benefiting from His Golden Messenger that I'm never going to meet in my life, and they're never going to hear His Golden Messenger in their lives. And I am so okay with that. You know what I mean? That's a great feeling. Yeah. Well, I want to talk briefly about the newest album, Terms of Surrender, which came out in 2019. You've, you've talked a lot about this, so people, I'm sure, who are listening know of it. Do you feel like your albums, like successive albums, do you feel like they're more authentic to you? Do you feel like you're revealing more of yourself as these albums go on? I'm not sure. I mean, as I get older and my kids get older and my lens on the world evolves, I think my life gets more complex. And so I think more complexity ends up on the records. Um, and I continue to learn how to be a better songwriter. You know, I continue to discover music that inspires me that I, I listen to and think like, oh, okay, you could do it like that. That's interesting. Okay. But there's never any intentional thing like, okay, I'm really going to expose myself on this record. I, I've never, I've never thought that way. I've just thought like, does this song feel genuine? And I keep using that word, but it's, it's really like the only thing that gets at, you know, my, my mission statement maybe is like, does the song feel genuine to me? Am I going to be able to sing this song every night? Is it going to feel real? Is there enough space in this song for me to grow with it so that five years from now, it might sound nothing like it does now, but there's enough space within it to grow. All of my favorite music does that. Van Morrison, fucking Bob Dylan. You can't even recognize a Bob Dylan melody when he plays, generally. Right. I think that is so beautiful. And I, I so like, I get it, but it's also so confusing to me to be at a, a Dylan show now and have people yelling like, everybody must get stoned, like rainy day women. It's like, that is not where this man is. You know, he doesn't yeah. want to do that. Like, 
So there's a new Hiss record that's coming out in March that's already been made and turned in, mastered and everything. And it's like, I feel like right now where I'm sitting in relationship to it and the way that it leans against a record like Terms of Surrender is it feels deeper and and maybe like a little more harrowing. And, you know, I think that is just the way that the world feels right now. Yeah. I got to ask you about the live experience because I've seen you a bunch of times and almost every time it's a different lineup, different setup. Is that by design or by like, you know, availability or is that something that occurs to you when you're playing with these different setups? Uh, it's It's a bit of both. I mean, it's kind of starts with availability and I feel like more and more, more and more now, I actually have the luxury of picking and choosing people solely based on the on the artistry of it and or based on whether what I'm intending to do on the show or the tour will fit with what they do. It makes me a little anxious to change up band members, but it's kind of just been how I've had to do it for one reason or another. It's definitely shown me like which songs are really sturdy in a certain way. Like um, are easily interpreted by many different types of players. I think there are some songs that like fall out of the repertoire, the live repertoire, simply because it's it's a lot of effort to teach them to a group of people when I know that like the next door is probably going to be a different people. So last question, um, what would the MC Taylor of today say to yourself of 20 years ago? 25-year-old MC Taylor, I would probably say something like, you should really hang in there because things just keep getting deeper and deeper. And if you're not going as deep as you can in the limited amount of time you have on this earth, then what's the point? I mean, that's kind of the summary of what we've been talking about, right? In terms of your own relationship with music. It sounds like with other music and your own music. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm like a music freak still. I'm buying records almost every day. I don't know. There's something about something about music that that does something very powerful to me. Is there any recent record that you think people should absolutely know about? Oh my gosh. You know, a lot of the music that I buy is older. I was listening to a Billie Holiday record this morning that has been in my life for many, many years called Lady in Satin. It's not a hard record to find, but it's sort of perfect for this season, at least in North Carolina. It's kind of cool. The light is changing. The leaves are changing. And I can't think of a record that better suits the like sort of onset of, of fall than, than Lady in Satin. It's an amazing record. Awesome. I'm going to check it out. Cool. Well, you you spent a lot of time with us. This was super fun for me, so I, I really appreciate you taking the time to go deep with us. Thank you for giving me your time. I appreciate it. Have a great day. You too, man. And now here's MC Taylor of His Golden Messenger playing drum, Biloxi, and Happy Birthday Baby. Hey, everybody. His Golden Messenger here. I'm going to play through a few songs from my recorded catalog. <clears throat> and um, I'm going to start with a tune that um, first appeared on a record called Bad Debt and then later appeared in a slightly different form 
on um, a record called Lateness of Dancers. And um, this is a tune, one among, among many, that uh, is um, indebted, at least in part, to the work of uh, the poet and writer and uh, activist Wendell Berry, who lives in Kentucky. I beat my dumb Everybody to come money I beat my dumb Yes, all the day All rise, all rise All rise in the morning Take the good news Carry it away, just take the good news, just spirit it away. The farmer shall wear all the green of his furrows, the plowman shall heal his seams for the day, the hunter shall steal his dangerous arrow. few songs that um, is uh, set at least in part around the Gulf Coast region of um, Texas and um, Alabama. It's also a song that um, is something of a of a, a birthday song to one of my kids and um, <clears throat> I've played this song many times.
bones on the jungle river Where the dragon surely dwells I seen Joseph with a mighty word and told him well Oh baby, it's your birthday, my sweet little one Oh six years old and truth be told, you're the only one tune here. So after I wrote and started playing that last song that uh, I just played, which is called Biloxi, my youngest uh, child, my daughter, um, was getting very um, annoyed that she herself did not have a, a birthday song. So I told her that I would write a song for her for her birthday and that I would play it um, whenever I was on tour. I don't know that she likes the song as much as I was hoping she would. But I think the tune is more for me than for her. This is a song um, that appeared on um, the last studio record that I put out called Terms of Surrender, and the tune is called Happy Birthday Baby. Try to repay you 
all these miles that I'm on When I'm far away, baby Sing this little song One is a lonely number two You were born in thunder three It was lightning quick We lit up the house like a matchstick Four, child, you're a wonder Help me tight when the world went under five Sweet only, can I tell you I love you? Thanks for joining us. Past, Present, Future Live is hosted and produced by RJB. The executive producers are Adam Kaplan and Kirsten Cluthy. Production, editing, mixing, and original theme music by Brad Stratton. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. Please visit OsirisPod.com to find more content and deepen your connection to the music you love. 